Section 36 of Stories of the Scottish Border by Mr. and Mrs. William Platt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 33 The Raid of the Reedswire. To deal with proud men is but pain, for either must ye fight or flee, or else no answer make again, but play the beast and let them be. Reedswire the name of a place about ten miles from Jedburgh, means the Red Swire. Swire is an old northern term for the descent of a hill, and the epithet red may refer to the colour of the heath. The affair about which we are to tell took place on the 7th of July, 1575, at a meeting held on a day of truce by the wardens of the marchers for addressing wrongs and adjusting difficulties which could not be prevented from arising upon the border. The Scottish warden was Sir John Carmichael, and among his followers were the Armstrongs and Elliots, Douglas of Cavers, a descendant of the Douglas who fell at Otterburn, Cranston, whose ferocious motto was, Ye shall want ere I want, Gladstone, good at need, and the ancient head of the Rutherfords, called in tradition the Cock of Hunt Hill, with his nine sons him about. The English warden was the haughty Sir John Forster, and he had full 1,500 men with him, chiefly Northumbrians, Tynedale and Reedsdale men, who looked with scorn upon the much smaller array of their hereditary foes. The meeting, however, began, meekly enough, with merriment and jests. Such border meetings of truce, though they might wind up in blood, as was to happen now, always began as occasions of marketing and revelry. Both parties came fully armed to such a tryst, yet intermixed in mutual sports and familiar intercourse. Some gayed to drink, and some stood still, and some to cards and dice them sped. The Scots planted their pavilions or tents and feared no ill, even when they saw five hundred Fenwicks, a powerful Northumbrian clan, marching in a flock. The clerk began to call the rolls and to deal with one complaint after another, for the loss of cows or ewes or other property. In the course of the proceedings, an accusation was raised against an English freebooter named Farnstane, at the insistence of a Scotch complainant. A true bill was found against the man, which means that he ought to be handed over to justice, but the English warden alleged that he had fled and could not be found. Carmichael, Considering this as a pretext to avoid making compensation for the felony, bade the Northumbrians speak out plainly and cloak no cause for ill nor good. Upon this, Sir John Forster, a proud and insolent man, began to reckon kin and blood, by which picturesque phrase the ballad probably means that he swiftly added up his forces. Then he drew himself up, backed by his dalesmen, all fingering their bows, and with insulting expressions against Carmichael's kin, he bade him match with his equals. The men of Tyndale, who only wanted a pretext for a quarrel, drew their bows and let off a flight of arrows among the Scots. The more moderate men on both sides at first tried to quell the tumult, but in vain. The fight was bound to come. Then there was naught but bow and spear, and every man pulled out a brand. The English showed their usual dexterity with the bow. 
The Scots, for some reason, never took to this weapon. They had firearms, pistolets, and the like. The terrible cloth-yard arrows from tackles flew, and the old proverb bade fair to justify itself that every English archer carried twenty-four Scots under his belt, an allusion to his bundle of shafts. Success seemed certain for the English side. Some of the foremost men among the Scots fell, and even Carmichael was thrown to the ground, and was within an ace of being made a prisoner. The air resounded with the rallying cries of the English, the names of their captains. A shafto, a shafto, a fenwick, a fenwick. The Scots had little harness among them. Only a few had the jack which served them as a defence for the body. Nevertheless, they laid about them sturdily with dints full dower, and there was many a cracked crown. Then suddenly a shout was heard. Jedburgh's here! A body of Jedburgh burgesses appear to have arrived just in the nick of time to add to the outnumbered force of Scots. They probably wore armour and what were called white hats, that is, steel caps. Meanwhile, the English, too confident of easy victory, instead of slaying more Scots and turning the repulse into a rout, thought only to plunder the unhappy merchants, who, trusting to the truce which had been proclaimed, had attached themselves to the meeting. Had it not been for the English greed, the Scots would have been defeated. As it was, the Tyndale men, throwing themselves on the merchants' packs, fell into disorder. Their adversaries recovered from their surprise, and the timely arrival of the Jedburgh men turned the tables. A short, sharp bout ended in the triumph of the Scots, and the Northumbrians fled, down o'er the brae like clogged bees. The Scots took many prisoners, amongst whom were the English warden and his son-in-law, Sir Francis Russell. But the most gallant soldier taken that day was that courteous knight, Sir Cuthbert Collingwood, to whose family Admiral Collingwood belonged. Several of those Fenix Fierce, who had turned up five hundred strong at the commencement of the fray, had the mortification of being carried off in triumph by their enemies. All these prisoners were sent to the Earl of Morton, Regent of Scotland, who detained them at Dalkeith for some days until the bitter feeling natural after such an affair had died down, at any rate in part, and by this prudent precaution the regent is thought to have probably averted a war between the two kingdoms. He ultimately permitted them to return to their own country, parting from them with great expressions of regard. The interest taken in the matter by Queen Elizabeth and the representations of her ambassador at Edinburgh no doubt had something to do with this happy issue. It will probably occur to the careful reader of this book as somewhat strange to find the ruling powers of England and Scotland both set upon peace. But it must be remembered that at this period in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, the heir apparent to the English throne was the young James the Sixth, King of Scotland, who would naturally not wish for any quarrel with the country which he hoped later on to rule. Elizabeth, on the other hand, had Mary, Queen of Scots, as her prisoner, and did not wish in any further way to strain the already delicate relations between the two countries. Carmichael mentioned in this ballad, known in full as Sir John Carmichael of Edrum, Scottish Warden of the Middle Marches, was afterwards murdered by one of the Wild Armstrongs, who is said to have composed the night before his execution the following manly and pathetic good night. 
The third and fourth lines show clearly the disrepute into which this once honoured clan was falling. The seventh and eighth lines could only have been written by one who, despite his faults, had the true gallant instincts deep in his blood. Armstrong's Good Night This night is my departing night, for here no longer must I stay. There's neither friend nor foe o' mine but wishes me away. What I have done through lack of wit, I never, never can recall. I hope you're all my friends as yet. Good night and joy be with you all. End of section 36